we needed to break. Not for a commercial message, but because Ms. Jill Mott, me, Sumley of Scores and Pours, just opened old wine and got sediment everywhere, <laughs> which is not common. Usually there's sediment in old wine, some sort of sediment, but not <laughs> all over that just bursts out of the bottle and it <laughs> went all over our equipment. That's pretty funny. Hello, radio host and jazz and classical music extraordinaire, Ms. Emily Reese. Hello to Jill. How are you today? I'm, I'm great. How are you today? I'm great. It's a beautiful sunny day in Minneapolis. Spring is, I'm not going to say here because we all know there's several weeks left where we could still get stung by the claws of winter. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, you're like, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> yeah, it just, it's funny because it takes a few years of living here. I mean, I've lived here for 13 years now, but it takes a few years before you really start to realize that you just cannot count on a warm day just because it's a warm day in March or April is by no means that going to stick around. And you just kind of like, you know, like, like kind of slowly that hope erodes, <laughs> I don't want to talk about this. Know. You know why? I don't want to talk about the weather because as a Minnesotan, I talk about it all the time. I know. And I I will concur. Yeah. All of with all of your statements. So beautiful today though. It is, and I just want to drink old wine. Let's drink some old wine. Cuz I never do. I mean, we don't need to like jump into it that quickly, but I'm really excited for this episode because I've asked you a few times about, you know, we've had conversations about music in general, lots of conversations about music. And one of the angles that we explore sometimes is how music ages, right? I mean, how, how do the, even a group like the Beatles, how did they sound in the seventies and the sixties versus how do they sound to us now when we listen, if, especially if we didn't grow up in that era, right? Mm-hmm. I know like for me, Madonna will always sound the same, but it, <laughs> it won't always be perceived that way depending yeah. on the era you grew up in, right? And wine is somewhat similar in its, I guess, ability to age, the relevancy of even the concept of it aging. And then of course, you know, some wines age and well and some wines don't. I'm sure some compositions age well and others have not. Is that fair to say? Yes, absolutely. I think there are so many pieces of music that you can listen to and you're instantly brought to a place in a negative way. And it makes it dated. It dates that composition somehow. But then I think there are, you know, the other side of that coin is there is music that you put on and listen to now. And it sounds as amazing now as it sounded 30 years ago as it'll sound 30 years from now. And it's never going to lose that beauty, that perfection, that whatever, the je ne sais quoi that has that it has that makes that piece special is always going to be there. And I tried really hard to think about choosing music from very different time periods and different perspectives to kind of demonstrate how something that's, you know, 700 years old or maybe 600 years old can still sound new and fresh as mm-hmm. something that was written maybe even 100 years ago okay, or something along those lines from the aspect of classical music. So that's where we're going to come from. Uh, I don't know why I just called myself we. Uh, that's what I'm going <laughs> to talk about today um, is uh, three pieces of music from, you know, like I said, very different times and places and that I consider to be very ageless. 
So I loved when you sent me the playlist. I loved that there was no Beethoven, no Bach, you know, because those are, I think, respectable names that everybody would agree with are, you know, timeless in the world of classical music. And mm-hmm. so I'm curious because I think it'll be like, I'm not sure I'll agree with you. And I don't come to it with as studied of an opinion as as you do, right? But um, I, And I'll be curious what our listeners think too. So feel yeah. free to chime in on Instagram. We are on Instagram at scores and pores. So feel free to comment on an episode if you have thoughts about an episode or you just want to, you know, give us some show ideas or something like that. We would love that. And also if you're able to toss us a few bucks a month, that'd be greatly appreciated as well. We're on Patreon at scores and pores. So patreon.com slash scores and pores. And we have a tier system. So if you want to give $5 a month, $10 a month, $20 a month, there are different perks for you to do that. But there is always patron only content that we release every other week. And we'd love to have you join the scores and pores family as we like to call it. So good. And <laughs> on that same website, patreon.com slash scores and pours, there's a link for merch. So you can get extra merch. We have like awesome hoodies, great t-shirts for all of you that live in Minnesota. We will definitely be approaching t-shirt weather very shortly, if not already. And to our existing patrons, thank you very much. We could not do this without your assistance financially, but also those of you that are sending us the DMs and those of you that are commenting on patreon.com slash scores and pours. We love that. So thank you very much. Now you said something a moment ago about, you said something like, I don't know if I'll agree with you or something about that. And it made me think, I spent a lot of time before we started recording this episode thinking about why I'm choosing this music and realizing how subjective of a choice it really is. Mm -hmm. And that's, it's so funny that you're like, I didn't see any Bach or Beethoven. And I'm like, well, I deliberately left them off because of course I think that that's time. Like I want, my instinct is to put like all the Brandenburg concertos on there, the English suites, all the Bach, this and that. And no one would agree with, not maybe not no one, but. That's why I think people tune into scores and pours because honestly- I mean, not to toot our own horn, no pun intended, but <laughs> I could have chosen Burgundy or Bordeaux. Yeah. That's what everybody would choose. Oh, let's drink some old Burgundy. Screw oh, that. Yeah. I mean, because mm-hmm. half the time they aren't as delicious as everybody says they are. They're just old and expensive. Sometimes they are. <laughs> but also those are the obvious choices, right? So I chose something that is left field, I think, from a lot of wine collectors' perspectives, but especially people that that know me and know yeah. my palate, they're going to be like, oh, Jill's going to bring some Spanish wine. Nope. What'd you bring? Tell us. I brought a wine from Sonoma County. What? <laughs> I Calif- know. Isn't that in California? <laughs> whoop, whoop. <laughs> yeah, it has to do with not only my love for the area, especially as of late, but when we went out there for a couple scores and pours, shows that we were doing. And then I stayed out there to do some subsequent work with winemakers and interviews and so forth. I met with an incredible winemaker and vigneron, Jacques Matou, which um, I'll tell you the name of his winery in a moment. I will leave you all in suspense if you don't know the name, because a a lot of folks don't. He's a little bit off the radar. I mean, he goes to natty wine fairs sometimes, but he's not like the popular... Chris Brockway or the Laloon or, you know, um, one of those cats. He's older. He's got probably, we're both in our 40s. He's got 20 to, no, 30 plus years on us. Wow. So he's he's a badass. Nice. 
I wanted to point out the reason why I asked you to do the show idea was I, you know, I've been missing a lot of, you know, with the pandemic and everything, I've been missing a lot of my wine people as of late, and especially the wine people, I, would, I don't want to say of my past, but that I got to see a lot more frequently in the past, right? My travels to Chicago and New York, because we would drink, of course, a lot of, you know, biodynamic wine, natural wine, da, da, that's what we're into now, uh, we've been into for a while, but we would explore very often older wines, and we would taste more studiously older wines. And that's something that I've just found here. I, I don't, there's not really that, I mean, there is that community, but I just haven't really latched onto it. Um, so I've been missing those people. And I also feel that with that comes like right now, I'm learning something about wine every day. And I've been in the business for 20 years every day. But I feel like, I don't know, years ago, I was learning something every minute. Hmm. And I'm hungry for that again. So just throw that out there. That I was like, let's drink old wine. And you were a little <laughs> bit like, what? How, what, where, what am I going to, where, where am I going to come from? And then we decided that this was, this was a cool way to go. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm so excited to taste it. And I'm also excited to talk about the composers that I chose. So where should we start? Um, I think we should start with a little music, if you wouldn't mind. Absolutely. One of the things that when I was thinking about who am I going to choose and how am I going to demonstrate music that's timeless. And I, you know, you do think about all the big ones, Bach, Beethoven, you go to Brahms, Chopin, Wagner, all these names just pop up, pop up, pop up. And I settled, quote unquote, settled on for my first choice, uh, some piano music by Robert Schumann. Schumann was a composer in the Romantic period, and he lived from 1810 to 1856, died young, another one who died young, 46 years old tragically too, super sad story for Schumann, but that's a whole other day. He wrote such beautiful music and... No, wait, tell us a little bit. What, what, what happened to him again? Well, he just had a lot of um, uh, mental illness issues and struggles, and that could have been from syphilis. It could have just been not related to syphilis at all, but when he died, he also had mercury poisoning, and so it's possible he had been treated for syphilis because that was a common problem back in the day of how that illness was treated. But he also was just very depressed and he tried to commit suicide and then he ended up in a mental institution upon his own request. And then within two years was dead. So, I mean, it was just, he just had a lot of, you know, a lot of inner demons at the very least that he couldn't control or didn't feel like he could. And mm. so that... Brilliant mind though. So oh, I, didn't, yeah. I didn't mean to interject. I think it gives people a little perspective and depth to even much more rich the music is. Yeah. It also kind of sheds light. I'm glad you asked because it does shed light on the beauty and intimacy of the music that he wrote. He wrote a lot of very difficult piano music. He wrote orchestral music too, um, although not. he didn't really dabble with that until later in his life. But he wrote a lot of difficult piano music, but he also wrote a lot of piano music that was meant for people like you and me to play. Maybe someone who had some technique and could read music, but wasn't going to be a concert pianist and play, you know, all the famous Bach of the day. And you should stuff. watch my piano technique. It's like chopsticks. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. I'm a little bit better than chopsticks, but not by much. Definitely. But so it's like simple, but also complex. It's not like it's easy to play. But it's definitely easier than some of his more advanced piano music that this, you know, so he wrote a lot of, you know, I kind of think of it as like salon piano music. 
And so he would write all these little miniatures and collect them into albums. You know, I think we've talked about scenes from childhood before mm-hmm. on uh, Scores and Pours. Uh, that was a collection of piano pieces. There's forest scenes, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Okay. Wald Zenon, forest scenes. And this was something that he wrote in the late 1840s, 1848 and 1849. And, well, let's just listen. I don't want to give it all away. Okay. So let's listen to the opening part, which is called Entry. scenic music. Yeah, very, very scenic and delicate. Mm-hmm. Now, part of that's the performance, you know, sure. but I mean, that's what he wanted. if you can when I'm listening to this I imagine when it was first performed people that listened were like wow this sounds new you know they'd never heard it before of course Mm -hmm. new and fresh and beautiful and delicate as you were saying but I feel like if I listen to it now could I go to the 1800s sure because I know the music yeah but if someone told me this was written 10 years ago, mm-hmm. I would be like, I would believe them. Like yeah. it, ta- it, it tastes, <laughs> I'm thirsty for wine. No, but it sounds as, f- it does sound fresh and it does sound beautiful and new and. Yeah, I just feel like, you know, if I were here a hundred years from now, I could play this for someone and say, do you think this is pretty? Or, you know, yeah. I, I just, it's just beautiful. And it's not, nothing is in your face. Everything is just very conversational, you know, is, very yeah. informative and it kind of draws you in. And I think that's a skill he had with his, the, these miniature piano works that is almost unparalleled. I mean, it's really stunning to listen to these tiny vignettes. And he titled them all. And he said, he wrote on the manuscript that he ended up sending to his publisher he wrote on there, you know, basically the reason I'm titling these, he's like, you know, music is music should stand alone. You know, you really shouldn't have to adorn it with a title to make it more meaningful. But what he didn't want was for people to attach meaning that was incorrect. So it does imply that there is some kind of meaning there for him Mm -hmm. because, you know, again, it's a set of tunes uh, and the whole set is called forest scenes. And so every single piece relates to that in some way, whether it's people that are in the forest or something you see in the forest or... Yeah, I mean, I immediately was like, I'm driving up north towards my cabin and it's like summer 
and almost like the car commercials that you see where, you know, it's all plush and the, the road yeah. is kind of, it's a small road. You're kind yeah. of zooming by. But I also could blink and I could be, it's, it, you know, it's winter. Yeah. And it's a windy winter day and almost yeah. all the leaves have fallen off the tree, but a few of them are, you know, disattaching for the, you know, the one and only time that season. I don't know. It's, yeah, it's lovely. Yeah. Can we listen to another movement just while we're here? Oh, Absolutely. So this is called Lonely Flowers. Little gophers are scampering about, you know, <laughs> yeah. in the background, in the foreground. Yeah. And there's this one little lonely flower <laughs> just in the breeze. that these are, you know, relevant for now and timeless because they are con so consonant. And I mean that because I, I wonder, like, you know, if I listen to Schoenberg or, you know, some other works from composers that t I relate them, you know, the first thing I think about when I think of Schoenberg is beauty but dissonant. Yeah. I know this is going to be a personal and a subjective opinion, but do you think that that is because they are you know, they are not seemingly as timeless to me because they're dissonant and kind of sound disjointed, even though it's totally planned to be that way. Then this is what I, I really struggled with this whole concept because what I want, what my gut says is to say, you know, to put something like that on the list, something atonal or 12-tone immediately draws you to a time. Okay. And... How about this? I'll, and I'll, this might help. This may be what you're thinking, and it may not be coming out because I, I had a hard time kind of fixating on a few different um, themes in my realm, in the, in the wine realm. And I think when you have a wine that you taste 20 years later or yeah. 100 years later, what you're looking is for some sort of harmony, right? You, the reason why you aged that wine is to be able to get a sense for the, the vintage that the grapes experienced. And, you know, of course the wine, if it's, if it's super age worthy and it tastes great, like in this case, hopefully we'll find out, but 18 years later, wow. probably upon release, it wasn't really enjoyable. Now that's a little huh. bit of the opposite because here we could have listened to this in the late 1800s or mid 1800s and thought it was absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. And it seems like it is almost ageless. Yeah. Whereas with wine, it's a little bit of a different concept, but what you're searching for is there is a consonant to it. Yes. You know, we're not looking to crack open a wine and it's like dissonant as hell, you know, yeah. in yeah. a palate form. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that, yes, the consonants helps. I think, you know, one of the pieces I picked is from pre-tonality, pre so like pre-tonic dominant harmony. So it's like modal. Um, That's for all you kids out there that know what all those <laughs> It's just from before music started to sound like Bach and Beethoven. Okay. So, you know, that... Oh, yeah, I know. Okay. Yeah, yeah, so that could immediately put a timestamp on it too, mm -hmm. but not this piece, I don't think, you know? And so, yeah. I mean, it it's like 
that's what I was trying to avoid was the timestamp. And the Schumann obviously sounds like mid-1800s. It definitely sounds like that. But... Um, but it also sounds like now. Exactly. Yeah. And I think when you, you know, say we picked some of Chopin's simpler works, quote unquote, I feel like that's true too. But the more complexity you add in particularly keyboard music in the Romantic era, I think that just cements the timestamp that mm-hmm. I was trying to avoid. Yeah. So, um, you know, yeah, it is. When you said ageless, that's what I was going for. And I I can't listen to Schoenberg and think that's ageless. Do I think it's all whole bunch of other wonderful things? Absolutely. Sure. But yeah, ageless that. it is not, you know? I don't think. So, um, so yeah. Yeah, interesting question. Good question. Can we drink some of that? Yes, we can. Okay. Another reason why I know I pointed out like my past is you know missing learning and missing tasting old wine. It's always there's always an excuse to pull wine out of the cellar. I have been at home alone, very rarely, but where I'm like, you know, I deserve something from the 1990s right now <laughs> with my frozen pizza. Yes. And it's such a lovely experience, but I think, you know, 9.5 out of 10 times I'm sharing the wine because that's what it's all about. I do want to point out, just like you mentioned, that your elections are subjective, you know, what you think makes for a timeless piece. It's that way for wine too, right? Like wine's ability to age is subjective because that's all in the eye of the beholder or, you know, the person that's that's drinking it. It's complicated too, because is it even feasible? Like we have to think about this is a luxury item, wine in general, right, for most people. And then when you think about the fact that wines are sitting, this wine has only been in my cellar for six months. But most wines that are in my cellar have been hanging around there for 15 years, 12 years, 10 years. That's a lot of money that I spent that's just sitting somewhere, right? <laughs> so and a lot of people don't have that luxury. So cellaring wine in and of itself becomes complicated for financial reasons. It's also like a lot of people don't like old wine. Like mm-hmm. they just want kind of more jovial, fruit forward, easy drinking wines, which I guess kind of speaks to there are two types of people that enjoy drinking. And this is, again, personal opinion, <laughs> subjective. There are two types of people that would sell our wine. I fall in the first camp, the studious camp. Why has this wine aged? What are we learning about it? Yeah. How is it now more reflective of terroir than when it was first released? Et cetera, et cetera. Beat the poor wine to death, write the notes, pair it with the food, all the things. And it also takes a lot of times the studious folks, they have context behind it, right? Which kind of makes me go to the other camp, right? The other camp is sort of like it's a status thing. They could say, here's my $300 bottle of X vintage of whatever, Bordeaux, Chablis, you name it, which is great. They're hopefully enjoying it. But what's the reason that it's on the table? Whereas I always think that wine is more enjoyed, A, in good company, most importantly, but B, when you have a context for why it tastes the way it does, which is maybe the reason why I'm in this business. This wine would probably not be in my cellar if I wasn't interested in this region, if I didn't know Jacques. Back in 2003, wines from this region were known for being really hot, really high alcohol, and big and bold and succulent and juicy. And honestly, they didn't have the backbone to age, which will get to in in a few minutes here. But, 
This wine was definitely not made that way, which is why it has held against the tests of time. I think this is my favorite after all the wines that I've ever had from Esme, all the Verdejo. I think that Jacques wines... Esmeralda Garcia is who I think you're speaking about, yeah. Yes. Okay. Jacques wines have been my favorite because we did that vertical and they were all so delicious and memorable. And this one, just knowing how old it is and how delicious it is, it's really amazing. They shot right to the top of my list. Wow, yeah. And how well they've cellared, you know? I mean, for being from such a warm place and it just um, is a testament to Jacques' You know, Katuri, Tony Katuri's winemaking um, back at that time, but Jacques farming and Jacques' assistance with that winemaking is just, yeah, hats off to both of them, shall we? Yes, please. Okay, so when I crack this open, yeah, chunks of sediment are on the bottom of the cork. Awesome. Which is pretty great. I'm going to pour really slowly because we may need to decant this. I actually am going to decant this. So she's just pouring the bottle of wine into a decanter, which just looks like a big scientific beaker, honestly, without the lines on it, into the light so she can see if there's anything floating into the thing. Has that aged look to it. It's very, um, it's not very dark. It's like, holy cow, Batman, holy shit, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. She took a sniff. It's like that brownish red kind of irony color. It smells like crushed potpourri. There's definitely some sediment. Yeah, it has that like brickish. That's like, the word I've been like trying light, to brick. like like kind of a dark brick color. And I'll I'll speak to y'all in a moment about why that has happened. But it has to do with polyphenols, anthocyanins in the plant kingdom. Nice. And pH. To scores and pores. To scores and pores. Yeah, to me it smells like stewed, dried, like fruits that have been rehydrated to stew them in wine. Yeah. Holy shit. It's very acidic. Tastes like cranberry juice. It's still very acidic. Mm -hmm. Tastes like cranberry juice. It tastes also like there's a faint amount of like suede on the finish. Yeah. Like a little bit of leather. There's a little bit of like bay, like bay leaf, Mm. dried bay leaf. Mm. Wow, that's intense. It's really intense, and it makes my throat hot. This is really fun for me, too, because you're really approaching territory that you don't know what to do with it, because some people would... I'm not putting this in the decanter to aerate it. Some people would want to kind of loosen it up because Mm. it's been in the bottle for a while, because think of, you know, if you've been... You just want to stretch it out, give it some more oxygen, and a lot of times that can really quickly... That's like telling... uh, 80-year-old to go run a marathon, like that's trying to do a lot to it and it hasn't had anything done to it for a really long time. Sure. So that can be really detrimental to a wine's health. Hmm. Um, so I was basically decanting it just to see it, what the sediment situation was like. Some people would leave the cork off. I put the cork back on because I want to try to keep it as close to as we're tasting it. I don't want it to all of a sudden we're 20 minutes into this podcast and it's like all of a sudden gone south really quick and now we're drinking like stewed fruit, just purely stewed fruit with no structure. It can, that know? can happen, huh? Yeah, it, with, with strange wines. And there are other wines that you want to decant them to aerate them weeks before you drink them. Whoa. So it just is like all a, an experience game and then in some cases a guessing game, yeah. which makes it, you're interacting with the wine, which yeah. I, you know is like my favorite 
a thing to do on planet Earth, really. Yeah, no kidding. Do you like it? I love it. I'm I'm shocked at how fruity it still tastes for mm-hmm. some reason, but it's really, um, and then the after effects, the retro nasal, mm-hmm. really is like that Jolly Rancher kind of dark red, fruity kind of Jolly Rancher if they were natural, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Very, very good. Um, yeah, I like. I love like five minutes after the first drink. Yeah, it's still and good. when I was talking about like, is this even feasible? You know, I mean, in order for this wine to behave this way, both in Jacques' place and in my place, we have to have similar conditions, right? Like, you have to have cellar temperature that's about fifty-eight degrees, give or take five on either side. Um, No big temperature shifts is the big thing. You want to have a very steady 50 to 70% humidity, 60 being, you know, the, you know, optimum level. No light, virtually no light. Wow. You can't have vibrations. You can't have odors. So like all of these things make for, you have to have the right, so what if you have the money and you don't have the right conditions or vice versa? So yeah. all the things have to come around to bring these luxury goods that are, when they are true, you know, romantic and agricultural products mm-hmm. to to be able to carry them throughout a, a longer life, which yeah. is, I'm really lucky to have that. Yeah, it's delicious. I'm so glad you shared it. I have like Less pairs of shoes, less pairs of socks and underwear than the average 40-plus-year-old woman, but I have a wine cellar with lots of wine in it. So one of my other choices, a French composer from the 14th century named Guillaume de Michaud, and Michaud wrote... Lots and lots of songs and poems and uh, a lot of secular music. He did write some sacred music too, but lots of love songs and things along those lines and was very influential on composers who came after him and poets who came after him too. Um, and a piece that I heard when I was an undergraduate has always stuck with me and I've, I just... Um, It's different every person who records it, and I'm sure that's a product of what the score looks like being from, you know, 1350 or who knows when. He lived from about 1300 until 1377, so he lived a long life through the Black Plague. Um, Wow, we aren't even at the golden age of Burgundy at this point. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, so it's it was uh, not an easy time to live for seventy plus years, but he did it, (laughs) and um, very famous in France. He worked for a lot of nobles and aristocrats, and was very famous. And as a result, there is a shocking amount of information known about him. Still not a ton, but just given his fame and you know widespread knowledge of his or appreciation of his music and such, such there's like first a dude who lived in the 1300s, mm-hmm. we kind of know a lot about him. Well, and that's I think my my because you've said 1300s a couple times. Mm-hmm. That's I think what made me when I was listening to it, I was like, wow, this makes me go to a place real quick. Yeah, I guess it could be of now too if I were thinking of you know we talked about in our organ session with Andrew Gottis, if you listened to a few episodes of Scores and Pours ago, 
the organ and its association with the church. Yeah. So I think when I hear this, I could be mm-hmm. hearing a secular song, but unless I'm mm-hmm. knowing the actual lyrics involved, it sounds a lot like the church. So in that way, it could be of now. Yeah. But that's maybe not what you meant. You well, yeah, no, I mean, it's a this is a secular song, and it, um, I think the first, I put two recordings in our playlist. The first that we'll listen to is much how I heard the song originally, with multiple voices in uh, style very typical of what you hear when you listen to music from 1350 or whatnot. So let's go ahead and listen to the first recording of it. There's just sediment all up and on my mic screen here. It's kind of (laughs) great. This is a group called the Orlando Consort, and if you like this kind of music, this is an, a wonderful ensemble to kind of listen to and see what you like about that era and whatnot. It's a really fantastic early music uh, vocal ensemble, Orlando Consort. as we're listening to it here in the background, I just want to know why in your mind how this is timeless because I hear it, but I don't, I, but at the same time, I don't. So I would love to hear your professional opinion. Well, let's listen to the other version I put on okay. and that might shed some light. Okay. This other version that uh, I included of this uh, piece, which again, it's called Rosalie's uh, by Michaud. This is from a Spanish-speaking ensemble, but this ensemble does it with voice and some kind of lute guitar. And, well, just listen to this other version. So this, I think when I was listening to both of these earlier today, yeah, I was like, wow, if you were to speed this up, yep, make it a little electronic, like this is, it's got, there is a modern, yes, bum, bum, this is bum, like one bum, angsty bum, teenager bum. away from being the next Tegan and Sarah hit. Yep. You know what I mean? Yes. And that is fucking astounding. Pardon my language, but can you not hear, like, put a beret on someone and set them on a corner of some major city with a guitar and they sing this in English? Yeah, everybody's gonna, yeah. I mean, how is that? It's 600 years old, and it's still that special. You know? It's more than 600 years old. Bonjour. 
So do you think when it was originally written, was it was there that lute or that string music to it? He originally wrote it for four voices. So the the first version we heard was more like just four unaccompanied voices. Okay. But as you can tell, because it's so brilliantly written, these other instruments can join in. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the recorder sound that we're hearing is playing literally one of the vocal lines. Yep. And the lute, not as much, but still, it's it's so gorgeous with the, that cello sound that's probably a viola da gamba, which is the yeah. predecessor to the or relative of the cello. And um, it all works so beautifully because it's written so well. Awesome. That reminds me of a lot of music that I I listen to now, honestly. Yeah, it's just, I'm almost speechless. Yeah. But then you know me, I'm never speechless. So. <laughs> and this album, I'm so excited I found this album, by the way. The name of the group is La Manfredina. And... I, I, it's a whole album of Michaud, and it's just as lovely. I listened to the whole thing yesterday. It was amazing. <laughs> wow. And shows one. Good work. Yep. Good work on my race. We, we were, thought the whole show would have been dedicated to that if you had a whole album to choose from. Maybe someday. All right. Well, I'll tell you a little bit more about this wine before we get into talking about the like the nitty gritty of why wine can age and how wine ages. I mentioned before Jacques Mathieu, he is the winemaker and the vigneron for a project called Côte de Caillou, which makes very little wine, out of Sonoma County. He's just southeast of Santa Rosa and direct, almost due west of Napa. What I love about this guy is, you know, he, after he started growing his own grapes and he would have them sent maybe 30 miles over to Tony Katuri's winery because Tony Katuri was has been a flag waver for natural wine and a believer in it for decades, long before it was even the words were even tied together in the English language here in the States. So he sought him out to help him make his wine and learn. And he knew he wanted to almost from the get-go do unfiltered low sulfur and then now no sulfur winemaking. Jacques desired to plant grapes that he had an affinity for when he was younger, which were grapes from the Rhone Valley. So on this little swath of land here that I'm, I'm showing Emily on the map, he's got some Syrah, he's got some Uvedra, he's got some Cunois, he's got a little white Chasselas, <gasps> he's got a little Grenache Blanc. He does have access to some really beautiful Carignan that he gets from Mendocino, so he does blend that in. But all of this here, it's just a very small amount of land. I want to say it's less than two acres total, maybe a little bit more than that. But from the get-go, he's wanted to do all old oak, no new oak at all to make his wines. Hmm. Tony Katuri's cellar doesn't have temperature control, so Jacques could have said, listen, let's put in some temperature control, I'll help pay for it, whatever. None of that. No sulfur added to the wines. And as you can taste, 
we did do an episode where we included a little vertical. We did a 14 or a 15, 16, 17 of the wines. Loved that. Love that, right? And so now to taste 2003, these wines truly are very age-worthy. And my guess is this is a lot of times high alcohol wine doesn't work. A lot of times high alcohol wine doesn't have high acid and you really need high acid in order to have wine go the long haul. It's sort of like think of high alcohol as steroids. Like you can look really strong, but other than like lifting a dumbbell, you might not be very agile and strong. So wine's very similar in that way. My guess is this probably has 14.5 plus percent alcohol. So the fact that it also has such high acid is really awesome, pretty rare, and just a beautiful wine to drink. All the grapes are co-fermented, which is super cool because it is a vineyard composite year in and year out. So it's not like one year there's a little bit more or less of this grape or he just wanted to do it in concrete or he only had this vessel available. It's like every year it's made the same pretty much. So it's a really good way to taste what happened that year, whether it's, you know, wildfires and people had to pick early or they could let things hang on the vine longer. So it's a richer vintage. He also, hopefully within the next year, has built his own winery. So he'll be able to age everything on site, which he's super excited about. He's going to have a little little boutique hotel or a little couple rooms for people to stay. He has a cheese cave he wants to make. (laughs) And he really is enamored with concrete. He wants to have concrete as well uh, in combination with old oak. So those, I think... All those things could make the wines even better. I still can't get over how delicious it tastes. Let me pour you a little bit directly from the bottle. I'll be as gentle as possible. Okay. Should we just jump right into why this is aged so well? Absolutely. I would love to know why. So I'll talk about what happens to wine as it ages and parallel like why that makes for an age-worthy wine. Above all, the first thing people notice, besides the color because sometimes you'll have bad lighting, whatever, you'll stick your nose in it, right? If you're if you're adequately trying to assess a wine. The fruit goes from primary aromas, usually of fresh strawberries, fresh all the berries, all the fruits, to dried all the berries, all the fruits. Yeah. Sometimes stewed all the berries, all the fruits. And that's so primary to tertiary, we call it. And we also, in the douchey sommelier world, of which I was born and raised, you know, neither here nor there, because who talks about bouquet anymore? (laughs) But in the sommelier world, that's primary aromas turn into a tertiary bouquet, where you do have more of like all of these essences of like, you said potpourri is a perfect example. Now we're just not in floral world. We're like dried flowers with spice, dried fruits, et cetera. Yeah, the spices too. The, the suede thing, all yeah. kinds of leather and animal-y things. But yeah, that's it too. It's still all organic mm-hmm. that you smell. Yeah. So the f- aroma, definitely noticeable. Color changes as well. So when you have, it's interesting, red wines get, as you we saw, we said brickish, kind of like a dark red, but brick yeah. color. That's the oxidation of these colors. Red wines get lighter. This was probably almost black when it was born, right? Mm. Like really, really dark purple or really, really dark blue. And white wines are the opposite. White wines are, you know, we've said white gold, straw, these elements of green or whatever, silver. Those actually get darker because of the polyphenols that white wines have. Mm -hmm. 
white wines get kind of like a copper or orangey or depending on gold in color. Color is made possible because in a red wine, in this case, because of the time that it spends on the skins. Anthocyanins live in this in the skins, and they're a polyphenolic compound that exists in the plant kingdom. So that's what makes flowers like red and blue. Oh, wow. And so anthocyanins are also in grapes. And there are many types of anthocyanins, which is why there are many different colors on the spectrum of red wines. Okay. Um, but it especially, that's why red wines are so vast, a lot more vast than, than white wines. And also because white wines usually don't spend time on the skins. We've talked about acid, but we haven't talked about tannin here. So what do you think about the tannin level of this O3 Cote de Caillou? For me, shockingly low. I would have assumed for some reason, I don't know why I assumed it would be super tannic, but it's just not. Oh, you set me up so nicely. Thank you, Emily Reese. Mm. No, it's not terribly tannic. It's low plus, medium minus. Yeah. Just a very light tannic grip there. That was an ode to you, Brit. And the reason why is because, and this has actually been scientifically disproven, but it makes sense when I say it. So I'm just going to say it and then everybody know that this isn't, some scientists say this isn't exactly how it happens anymore. But tannins and anthocyanins, when they bind, they polymerize, you know, they become like, they're a longer compound. But remember we talked about luging in the previous episode of Scores and Pores and all of a sudden then now you can see because it's not soluble in that alcohol. When tannins and anthocyanins and other molecules polymerize, they become non-water soluble or alcohol soluble and then they fall out and precipitate out in the form of sediment. Oh. So that to me makes sense and visually it makes sense wow, this wine was really tannic and now the tannins aren't there anymore. Scientists have disproven that, but now they can't prove, well, why it happens. Now they can't say, oh, well, it is in fact... Okay. They know that tannins decrease with time, yeah. But they are, tr- you know, they're trying to prove that that is tannin in visual form. Okay, they're saying that that's not the case. Whereas I sort of think it. I kind of want to believe that it is. <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> but mean, I mean, it's got to go somewhere. A hundred percent. Yeah, and this is where uh, this is a great example of a very actually uh, outlier in the big bold wine being able to age. Usually, I've explained on the show before that. Alcohol and acidity are like converse of each other, right? Like, and if you think of picking an unripe banana, that unripe banana is going to have a ton of acidity, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't have a lot of sugar. So if you were to try to ferment that, there's not a lot of sugar for the yeast to make a lot of alcohol. Yeah. Whereas now we leave that banana out on our counter for years, (laughs) we'll just say months or weeks, and you're going to get really a really, really sweet ripe banana that's got a ton of sugar for yeast to make a lot of alcohol, but it's not going to be a refreshing banana anymore. There's not a lot of acid. Yeah. So there's the big, bold wine. I'm going to cellar this wine because it's really tannic. Yes. And it's so full-bodied. No. It's <laughs> usually not how it works. Yeah. Unless it's a port. High alcohol ports, those age well. But oh. that's, there's a whole, that's another ball of wax why those age well. <laughs> okay. And acid, I think, is in my mind as crucial as tannin because tannin we see degrades as the wine has aged. Acid stays fixed. So if Amazing. we were to put a dipstick in, and the, our perception of acid is supposedly different because of what happens to fruit, I want to argue that acid decreases, 
But every chemist that I've talked to, winemaker that I've talked to that knows what's going on in their wines are like, no. Dipstick says this wine is 3.4, 3.4 pH. 2003, it's going to be 3.4, give or take 0.1 maybe in, you know, now in 2021. So acid is fixed. But so to me, acid is something that if it doesn't die, acid is more responsible for longevity than tannin. Body doesn't necessarily, high alcohol doesn't mean your wine is going to be age worthy. It's more about acid and tannin than it is about body. Yeah. Also, what is not a signifier of age worthy wine is a region. Just because it's a Burgundy, Bordeaux, even from a really quote unquote good vintage or a good age worthy producer of the past, wines aren't made now like they were made decades ago or a century ago, where they were picked and they were hardly ripe enough. They were so acidic Mm. and they got tannin from oak and obviously from the skins, but they needed time to calm down. Nowadays you buy wine and like 98.9% of wine or something like that is consumed right away. So these burgundies that are, yes, they're age-worthy to some extent, but they aren't made the same way. So usually they're kind of ready to drink when they're released. And you can also find yourself feeling a little deceived when you open your, you know, $100 or $50 bottle of Burgundy or certain Riojas that you've read, these have to be 20 years aging and they, yeah, no. It just amazes me that you could wait 20 years for some such a disappointment in that case. I've turned a lot of really cool wine into vinegar because I either waited too long, but more than that, it was in the craze of like full-bodied Spanish wines being age-worthy. And in theory, they just didn't even have enough acid to stay the long haul. They fell apart right like within a decade. They just tasted like a lot of new oak and stewed fruit and had no vibrancy from that acidity. And mic drop. Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Which you can totally taste the acid in this sucker. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, yeah. I mean, the first thing that hit me was the the smell of the, you know, dried, the potpourri. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the first thing that I tasted was an acidic mouthful in a delightful way. And acid and tannin are also antioxidant protectors, right? When we think of tannin actually is an antioxidant. You think of acid, like you can clean your floors with vinegar, you put lemon in your water. Like there are a lot of reasons why acid is is good for us and good for cleaning. So, I mean, acid is just um, helps to preserve the wine. Love it. One more piece? Yes, please, please, please. So this one, it's so funny. I, I This is a personal favorite. And maybe I've said something about it before on Scores and Pours, but we've never heard it. And I've always wanted to play it. And and I felt like, I was like, wow, this is the right time. And I would love to spend more time on this piece someday, and I know we will. But it, it to me, is a very timeless piece. And this is called Fantasia on a Theme by Thomas Tallis. And it's by a uh, British composer named Ray Fon Williams, who wrote in the early 20th century. Uh, so he wrote it in 1910. Von Williams lived from 1872 to 1958. And he was really in love with British folk song. And he was also in love with the British or English Renaissance, music from the Renaissance period. And so Thomas Tallis was an English Renaissance composer. And so Von Williams took a theme from Thomas Tallis and then he 
did it in his own way. Von Williams uh, wasn't really a popular composer until his late 30s. He didn't really find his voice until then, and he found it thanks to Maurice Ravel, actually. Ravel helped Von Williams to tap into his individual musical voice. Of course he did. And Yeah, of course he did. And it changed the way Von Williams wrote. And then Von Williams suddenly was like, you listen to it and you're like, well, that's Ray Von Williams, which is special, you know? Mm -hmm. And the instrumentation of this is interesting. It's for string orchestras. So it's for two different sized orchestras and a string quartet. So orchestra one is usually a little bigger than orchestra two, or always bigger than orchestra two, and then the string quartet uh, plays a central role as well. So a lot of times if you go see this in concert, which I highly recommend, they'll obviously be separated left and right, and then often the string quartet's right in the middle. So uh, let's listen to a little bit of this piece by Ray Fawn Williams called Fantasia on a Theme by Thomas Tallis. Well, we can thank Game of Thrones and stuff like that for making this stuff timeless. This is like perfect for stuff like that. <laughs> Braveheart, yeah. all the Celtic, Nordic, outdoor, ancient shows mm-hmm. and such. Yeah. Film score. Yeah. But where do you think they got it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> yep. grabs the bottle from her cellar. <laughs> she debates the O3 coat de Caillou or the O2 clap cornas. To me, this is some of the most beautiful music ever written and really is timeless because, first of all, it's a combination of times in the first place, right? We're combining English Renaissance with early 20th century English music. But there's a lot of music that does that that isn't as timeless as this and ageless as this, in my opinion. This could be in a video game. I mean, this is like just so many different... Yeah. ...where I could hear this and be like, well, that's appropriate there, it's appropriate there, it's appropriate there... This is about as lush as it gets. And I had how long this, how long is the piece? It's about 15 minutes. Okay. And I had this really great experience last night, you know, in I live in a house. 
that's now quite empty because I'm selling it. And I've always had housemates, and so I was not really accustomed to just cranking music whenever I wanted. And last night at, you know, 10, 11 o'clock at night, I did that with this piece. And I remember doing it when I was in college with headphones, laying on the floor and listening to this as, like, loud. And it was kind of like, it was just really special. I mean, this is a really... Um, beautiful piece that washes over you with just purpose. There's just purpose behind this music. This is good, good stuff that's gonna stay good forever. Mm-hmm. You know. Rayfon Williams, we've talked about him before. Of course, we've talked about The Lark Ascending, which is that beautiful oboe piece that he wrote. Um, and we've talked about, I think, other music of his as well. He wrote symphonies. He wrote other orchestral music. He wrote music for wind band. So, like, if you were in band and you had a good band in high school, you might have played music by Rayfon Williams. So, um, yeah. I think when we when you think of timelessness, I mean, life is so finite, right? And we, especially during the pandemic, a lot of people have thought a lot about, you know, just life is short and the, everybody said it. I, I'm going to quote the world. Oh, a year has been taken away from us, you know, and I think music like this and wines like this remind us of of how timeless certain things can be. And we're really lucky when we're we, I do think we have to pay attention to them. I mean, if Joe Schmo could, or Jane Schmo, or they Schmo could drink this 03 Cote de Caillou or could listen to this music and be like, yeah, that's cool, whatever, it's great. But I think when you have the context of being from the 1800s, being 600 years old, and still sounding relevant today, and tasting a wine like this and being like, wow, this tastes very relevant. And I think Jacques would be very proud that his wines taste like this now because that's I think something that a winemaker I don't know if you know some winemakers want their wines to be age-worthy some it just happens to be that way but I think he would be very proud that 18 years later his wines are even more drinkable than a lot of Rhone wines that were made in 2003 very hot vintage by the way I've been having them lately and they're not as you know, refreshing as this. To that, I say to timelessness. To timelessness, ageless wines, ageless music, to scores and pours. Scores and pours. Thank you for listening to Scores and Pours with Sommelier Jill Mott and me, radio host Emily Reese. You can find links and a playlist and a wine list and more information about the episode, pictures and such, if we've referred to those. And support us financially on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash scoresandpours. You can also find merch, hoodies and tees and such on that website. And we're on Instagram at scoresandpours. Feel free to DM us there with any show ideas, uh, any comments and questions. We love your feedback. And do consider supporting the musicians that we featured today by buying their music. 
If you could, please rate us wherever you listen to the podcast, be it Spotify, iTunes, Apple Music, Patreon, all the things. Edited by Jill Mott and Emily Reese, our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Incorporated. June. June, little kitty.